Welcome to Riding Westward. I'm your host, Brendan Rensink. Today, we talk with sociologist Justin Farrell about his new book, Billionaire Wilderness, The Ultra-Wealthy and the Remaking of the American West. Let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast and who produces it. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. For better or worse, it's a one-man operation with me, Brennan Rensink, playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, and everything else. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at BYU, neither of which roles trained me for the current task. But I do have a lot of fun doing this because I'm passionate about better understanding the North American West, the region I have called home for most of my life. In each Writing Westward episode, I have a conversation with writers of the region, academics, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, anyone authoring anything about the West. My goal is that these conversations will spark listeners' curiosity to dig in a bit more themselves and think differently about the peoples, histories, environments, ideas, and identities that make up the North American West or that we ascribe to the region. Please leave reviews or comments on whatever platform you are listening and let me know if we're succeeding. For updates or communication, please follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find all episodes on our website, writingwestward.org, or listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or most all major podcast distribution platforms, apps, and services. To learn more about the BYU Red Center, stay tuned, and at the end of the episode, I'll offer some additional information about our projects, programming, live-streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research, and events. Find the center at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D Center. For more regular updates, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at BYU Red Center. Now, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. If you have visited some of the more striking wilderness areas or national parks in the American West, you may well have noticed the high cost of living, the dominance of real estate markets by vacation properties, and other evidences of immense wealth flowing into the communities that surround these breathtaking landscapes. Teton County, Wyoming, home to Jackson and the Grand Tetons, provides one of the most extreme examples of wealth concentration in the rural West. Yale sociology professor Justin Farrell's new book, Billionaire Wilderness, The Ultra-Wealthy and the Remaking of the American West, published by Princeton University Press just this year, reveals this hidden world. Built on years of extensive research and interviews, Farrell relates how the ultra-wealthy use nature, conservation, and relationships with the rural poor to not only protect and grow their wealth, but to transform themselves by adopting new identities, securing social prestige, and shedding social stigmas often tied to their wealth. These relationships help them to simultaneously secure their financial status and remake their public personas as more authentic, virtuous, and community-minded. Farrell uncovers how the conservation efforts and environmental philanthropies can negatively impact the local communities, with particular emphasis on the working rural poor and the middle class, whose labor the ultra-wealthy depend on. While the scale of wealth concentration and disparity in Teton County is perhaps the most extreme in the West, Farrell contends that there are familiar patterns that have lessons to teach for the West writ large. Professor Justin Farrell, welcome to Writing Westward. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, happy you were able to take some time out of your summer uh, to chat with us. And very excited to talk about your book, Billionaire Wilderness. In this book, you seek to understand this relationship between what you term the ultra-wealthy, and then the natural environment in and around Jackson Hole, not just why they flock there. It, it's gorgeous. It's kind of obvious why any of us go to you know Jackson Hole, but you're trying to understand what's unique about how they interact with nature, how they use nature, and then how all that impacts the communities surrounding them. Uh, so I wanted to start by asking what, what brought you to this topic? I'm sure there's a, a good backstory for how you landed on some of the research questions that you bring up. Yeah, it really started when I was young, um, honestly, and just some of the personal experiences I had growing up in a family who spent a lot of time out in that area, um, not so much Jackson Hole per se, but that region, um, the greater Yellowstone region. And I was born in Cheyenne, and then um, my that's where my dad's side of the family resides and in Wyoming. And um, 
my mom's side is in Idaho. And so we kind of would meet in the middle there where uh, in Teton County, um, Teton County, Wyoming, but also just over the pass in Teton County, Idaho. And so I've really been fascinated just in general growing up. And then as I've moved into an academic career um, with the ways that the Rocky Mountain West is growing, the ways that it's changing. And obviously for, for listeners of this podcast, they know that it's a very dynamic, um, a very diverse, a very complex place. And so lately, you know, this project I embarked upon about seven years ago, just looking at, at how wealth is reshaping this region. And I, I would see little things growing up and I would see, you know, larger patterns as I kind of moved into the academic study of these things. But when I was growing up, you know, you'd see a, a ho- maybe a hotel built um, in an area where there weren't many hotels or you would see um, bigger cabins being built that look, you know, more like homes. Man- mansions, than- yeah. Yeah, mansions to put it to put it lightly i tried i try my best to avoid <laughs> like mansions or the word rich in the book but it's hard to hard to get around it without um you know avoiding the truth um so yeah mansions um and it really made me curious and so i the other thing uh, I, i'll mention too is when i was younger i would join my mother who was a, a house cleaner at some large homes and this was actually in nebraska we lived in nebraska for for a time too when I was growing up. And I think those experiences really made me curious about wealth in America, just in general, and about how people who had more money than we did, um, how they saw themselves, um, how they saw people like my mom, how they saw people like me. And then, you know, pairing that with a lot of the work I do on the environment in the American or the North American West and, and how that's viewed. And so it was this just this kind of perfect storm, I guess. Um, and that's that's sort of you know it originated in these personal experiences. And I can talk more about the academic motivations behind the book, but really, um, ultimately, it was about the personal experience and seeing these changes and, and kind of wondering about them. And if you're going to go and become a sociologist, you might as well pick a topic that allows you to visit and study someplace beautiful and a place that you oh, love, right? Yeah. 100 percent you know and i would even when i was in grad school um before i picked my dissertation topic just a big decision you know when you're doing your phd and i was at notre dame the time where i did my phd in sociology and my department had you know in it there was no one familiar really with the american west there was no one familiar with um even really environmental issues or environmental sociology and um i was out with my grandpa out in Idaho, driving around from West Yellowstone um, down to his cabin in a small town called Island Park. And I was like, you know what? I really love being out here. I'm really interested in what's going on. And I'm really interested in how this, this area might, you know, mean something or teach us something about the nation as a whole, about environmental issues as a whole. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to study this place. And that's how um, I came up with my first book, which is about environmental conflict in this area and conflict between different groups of people and ways of life. Um, and that's so you're right. That really was the motivation, just kind of like, you know, the, the personal passion, which I think is really you know important for any project. And in sociology, people often say uh, it's the sociology of me. And that's what that's what scholars do is they study themselves and their own experiences that's certainly true in my case. Interesting. Uh, what kind of wealth are we talking about in Teton County? I mean, I think I mentioned to you via email. I was just up in Island Park last week, and there are some, you know, really large cabins um, that really dwarf the the very modest cabin that my in-laws' family has. But reading through your book, I don't think we're on the same scale, and really maybe anywhere in Island Park, Idaho, uh, as we are in around Jackson Hole. So what's the kind of, what kind of wealth are you talking about in terms of real estate values, in terms of the disparities between the ultra wealthy who own property there and then the working class who may be, as you say, like uh, doing domestic work in the homes or cleaning? What what are the, some of the numbers here that you can throw out for us to give us kind of an idea of the scope and scale here? Yeah. So the title of the book, Billionaire Wilderness, really isn't an exaggeration at all. It's um, billions of, of dollars have flooded into um, areas around the West and in Teton County, especially 
Um, you know, nowhere is the global storyline of wealth concentration really seen in sharper relief than here. And um, so we're talking, you know, the richest county per capita in the whole United States, um, where per capita income is highest in the nation at 252,000, which is much more than the second place uh, county, which would be where Manhattan is. I think it would, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's it's not really even close. It's in, it's like 195 maybe. Um, so it's 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 really wealthy. You know, the top 1% in Teton County earn an average of $28 million uh, annually. So that's the annual income. And, but what's interesting, I think, it's not just the amount of wealth, it's how it's being made. And so most of the wealth in this county is coming from investment income. It's not coming from a normal job. It's, it's money that has kind of come in and the people invest it and make, you know, more money off the money that they already have. Um, and so, you know, I think by, for example, by 2015, 80% of all income in the area was coming from investment income in that, in that place. And it's really no surprise. It's, um, in large part because there's no income tax, state income tax. Um, there's no corporate, uh, tax and very loose restrictions on what counts as being a resident. And so, and so it's really, uh, again, not a surprise in some ways, the amount of wealth is always shocking. Um, but it, it makes a lot of sense when you dig into it. And I have an entire chapter where I, I just tell this story of how this little, you know, remote place in the Rockies that's difficult to get to, um, how it became the wealthiest county in the country. And, and just, you know, so when we when we're looking at the gap between the rich and the poor, um, the gap there is the largest in the nation as well. But that's really because there's so much wealth that that gap is so large. What does this do to, say, pro- property values then for for kind of that, that, that span of residents or that range of residents? Oh, they're through the roof. And when you, um, so in this county, 97% of the land is already federally owned. And so there's really not a lot of land to develop, which is basic supply and demand. You know, um, land values go up and up and up. There's, you know, fewer and fewer parcels upon which to build. You layer on top of that conservation easements on a lot of these properties that are locking away land from being developed. And so there's a minute, you know, amount of land available. And so um, home values, I mean, the graphs, on the curves on those graphs are so steep. Hmm. Um, and I get into that a little bit in the book about, well, protecting nature is, you know, great. And I'm all for that, but it has huge financial um, impacts in a positive way on the, on the wealthy who can afford to be there. And I think we see this in other areas of the West. It's just all really shown in and magnified in a magnified way in this place. Um, let me give you another statistic just relative to um, the average worker who's not making all their money from investments. So um, in 45 years, over the course of 45 years, the ordinary salary has only increased there by $1,000. Um, and, you know, wow. that's amidst, yeah, these skyrocketing home values, Inflation, and so, um, or is that in real? Yeah, everything. Um, it, it it went from like forty. I have the stats in my book, but I think it was like forty four thousand dollars to like forty five thousand dollars or something. Um, folks can check it out, but it's it's a pretty staggering statistic um, to pair, you know, alongside the amount of wealth that is flooded into this area. The first time I drove through Jackson Hole was, I think it's like summer of two thousand five or two thousand six, and my wife and I were on this cross country road trip and we drove in and we were coming up from the South uh, and we stopped maybe like at a subway or something for a horrible sandwich. And um, as we were driving through then the rest of the area and then up over Teton pass, it kind of hit me. I thought, how are the workers at the subway? How did, how in the world do they afford to live here in Jackson hole? And I realized, well, they probably don't live. I mean, they probably live, you know, 30 or 45 minutes south in some of the smaller communities we had driven through. But we see this all over the West, right? Sun Valley, Idaho, Moab, Aspen, you know, all the places up in the Rockies. But I, I really appreciate how your book kind of does the two things of getting into this world of the ultra wealthy and understanding how they interact with the region, with nature, but then you didn't ignore. I mean, because that would have been a fascinating story. 
end the book you could have written it maybe a, a year earlier you know and uh, been done with it but you pair it with uh the the working class experience and how they view the ultra wealthy which we'll, we'll get to but um i'm really glad that you inc included that perspective yeah i mean it's it's really you can't really separate them i'll just say that real quick that they that the working poor there have come um, because of the wealthy in some ways that they that the wealthy have created this market and the need for a services sector for people to you know prop up their way of life and they and then you know they do provide jobs um whether they're high paying enough that's um it's no you know for the most part but um they're linked and so this migration is not one or the other they you really wouldn't have either one but i mean to, to pay high enough to live in town i mean it would have to be pretty amazing sal yeah salaries yeah they'd have to some of them share a trailer um some of them, you know, are willing to do that or live in a hotel room and, and share hotel rooms. Um, but more and more, you just see folks living 45 minutes to an hour outside of town. Yeah, uh, I have an anthology coming out in the next year or so. And one of the chapters is about um, some of the migrant labor communities in the Rockies that work in, you know, Telluride and Aspen and these places, but they have to do these long hour-long commutes on icy winter roads and uh you know they've been priced out of the places that depend on their labor you know to exist but it, it, yeah very interesting dynamics i wanted to um, touch on the two main theses that you build this around and then maybe we can walk through a few examples of them um i'll just i'll just quote here a little bit from from your book um, to make you uncomfortable by making you listen to your own words. Um, uh, you write, uh, nature takes on unique power for the ultra wealthy, allowing them to confront urgent economic and social problems they face as to how best enjoy, share, or multiply their money, and how best to respond to social stigmas and feelings of inauthenticity or guilt. They resolve these dilemmas in two corresponding ways, each of which has a sizable impact on themselves, the environment, and the wide community. So these two ideas, how are they using money to uh, multiply their money and to become perhaps even wealthier or to protect their money? Um, and then how do they use it in kind of a more personal social way to deal with perhaps guilt they feel, um, the cultural stigma of being elite and rich and so forth, and they use the environment in both of these ways. And then you pair this throughout then, and then especially in the latter part of the book with um, the working class experience and views of them. Um, so I wanted to maybe walk through a few of the things here that you do in these to kind of cover these two big ideas. Um, and the first uh, is how they use nature to solve what you call economic dilemmas. Um, and you talk about um, environmental veneer, um, uh, kind of uh, the shallow altruism of some of their endeavors. Maybe you can give us a few examples of them. The first one would be this idea you have of um, conservation compensation. You have a whole chapter on this about how conser conservation efforts might make them actually wealthier. Like, how does that work? How could a rich person make themselves wealthier by environmental action? Well, in, in this area, it's pretty easy to do. And it's a mechanism that is used all throughout the West and throughout the United States. And it has to do with conservation easements and the tax benefits you can, you can gain from easements. I mean, I don't mean to come off as um, unsupportive of, of conservation or conservation easements or land trusts, because I'm very supportive. Um, but I do think we overlook the tax benefits that um, can motivate some of these folks to engage in environmental work. Um, and, that it's premised on this, what I think is a simplistic popular assumption that conservation is kind of always assumed to be in this vague sense, an altruistic public good. And we don't think about the ways um, that people with wealth are able to leverage that wealth through these different avenues um, to either, you know, literally um, help their bottom line through some of these tax, tax advantages um, and then also um, just with their property value um, going up and up and up and constraining supply. But you're not making the claim that they're doing it in bad faith. Many of them have good intentions, like they actually do right. often care about the environment. And I think it's important to point That's that right. out. No, no, they are often in good faith. I think at times they're somewhat naive about the um, about seeing conservation um, 
in a in some sort of life that's not just protecting this land and um, or you know saving the moose or something like that. But when we're talking about conservation or we're talking about environmental issues, we're talking about climate change, um, we're talking about consumption and all of these sorts of things that um, they're not so involved in um, and even maybe are unsupportive of. Um, yet they're very um, friendly with the sort of like large scale land conservation or conservation on their own land that, again, does benefit them financially. I'm not saying we revoke those financial incentives, but I'm I'm shining a light here to say, let's let's look at the full picture and who's really benefiting um, and who and how we can benefit in lots of different ways from this. So, yeah, I'm not pointing out that these people are kind of hell bent on making money at the destruction of the community or just because they want to protect their land values. Um, I do think, though, that we need to kind of strip away this veneer that conservation um, can provide these these um, financial benefits. So I, I, I kind of in that chapter, I really try to just present some of these larger patterns and ways that they can and ways that we don't think about it. Explain to us what a conservation easement is. Yeah. So if you had um, say you have a property and you had 100 acres um, and you may set aside, you can set aside, I don't know, half of it and the land and the land trust would um, kind of come in, manage that land for you and re you would receive um, financial um, returns or, or tax breaks because you are protecting that land. That's kind of putting it in a very simple way. And then it puts restrictions on what you can do with the land, right? Exactly. Yep. Yep. And so maybe it won't be developed and you can put all sorts of restrictions on it. Um, it kind of depends and they work differently in different areas. Um, and they're a, a really important mechanism all around the United States for, for achieving um, what we might call win-wins in conservation. Yeah. So it can provide huge tax benefits, which some, you know, the ultra wealthy are often dealing in, you know, astronomical numbers in terms of, uh, you know, what, what kind of tax brackets they're in and how their different incomes are, you know, being earned and then taxed. It also has an impact on the real estate value. So I have 100 acres. I set half of it aside as, as a conservation easement. And then I think some people might think that that might actually devalue the land's potential for future sale because oh, there's this conservation easement on it, so a, a new buyer wouldn't be able to do stuff with it. But in this real estate market of the ultra-wealthy, why is that 50 acres set aside as a conservation easement actually perhaps of value or making it uh, a more valuable property? Yeah, well, there would be fewer, you know, people, um, fewer, fewer land, you know, parcels to build on, basically. Yeah. And it, it can increase the prestige of living there. Um, it maintains the the you know, someone's view shed, perhaps. I mean, there's all sorts of ways it you can benefit. Shed. Yeah, yeah, indirectly or directly. Uh -huh. You know, someone's not building in, in your line of view of the Tetons. Yeah. Um, you know, so. So having that land officially blocked off, actually, that's sometimes what ultra-wealthy buyers are looking for, right? They don't want to buy a place that may be developed out, you know, or have, so having like the bigger land and stuff set aside is a, attractive. Exactly. Buyer. And I mean, if I owned uh, land like that, I probably wouldn't want somebody building next to me either. You know, so it's it's it, it makes a lot of sense. It's and again, it's not to say it's in bad faith and that it's not a win for conservation when when folks um, engage in those activities. But, you know, you look at a lot of the finance advisors there and you look at their websites or you talk with them. That's a key selling point for them. To, to kind of recruit somebody from New York, say, hey, you could pay for this property. Maybe it costs, you know, $15 million, but here's how much we can save so you can make this work um, through these conservation channels. Um, and again, it's, it's, very, it's complex. It's, that's not necessarily um, always a bad thing, but um, we need to look and see kind of who's, again, who is benefiting conservation? What is conservation for? Who's it for? How does it serve that community? Um, and what kind of impact does it have on prices in the community? Who can live in the community? And also, I would say I spend a lot of time in the book looking at issues of, of culture, issues of so, social status. And, you know, if it can kind of reward these sorts of people for being um, philanthropists in the community when, again, they're, they're also benefiting from it.
as well. You know, so it's, it's again, not so straightforward. Um, and so that who is crowned as a hero in the community versus who is not, um, it, it can relate to this as well. well. Let's talk about kind of about this philanthropy then. And in, in one chapter, you talk about connoisseur conservation, how the types of philanthropic conservation activities they are doing are often very selective. And you've already explained, often targeted at the types of things that will give them a, a financial benefit. I think you call it feel-good altruism, right? That they can, you know, it feels good to be, you know, conserving and protecting nature and so forth, right? Or purifying nature. Um, but it's very selective, isn't it? It is. And I, I call it connoisseur conservation as, as well because um, it's similar to some of the other ways that they um, view and experience life as an ultra-wealthy person. So, you know, for example, one media executive told me that nature, you know, he's moved out to this area and nature has become his new fine wine, basically. And, um, you know, through these different stories, they would tell me, I found that that nature is really akin to some of these other experiences that, that they have, that they savor, such as fine art, fine wine, fine cuisine. And Jackson and the Tetons represent the pinnacle of, of nature. And it does for, I think for a lot of Americans, when you think of, you know, what is the most iconic mountain range or what, you know, what do people hang on their walls from Antle Adams that it is the Tetons and it, it does represent this really, um, I guess, you know, akin to a fine wine or the best um, art that you can find if you're in Europe or something. And so protecting the Tetons or protecting this area by extension is, is kind of similar to how they may protect art or they may um, experience those types of art. And um, that's, that was really an interesting parallel for me um, that emerged from some of my conversations and, and does relate to the ways that they, they think about, you know, conservation and what it's for and protecting this delicate ecosystem, like you would the Mona Lisa or something like that. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that there's a darker side, you know, to all of this as well, and that this pristine nature, and that it gives you this, you know, it has this therapeutic remedy that is really important for you. Um, you're also building a $10 million home constructed from natural, local natural resources, the wood, stones, um, the amount of power it takes to um, sustain that type of property, just in terms of energy use. And, um, in these in this ecosystem that contributes to climate change and not and to mention some of these jet in and you fly a private yeah. jet in or even if you know so there are all these ways as well that um they're contradictory and there are these ironies that i point out all through the book in a way that i think is fair you know i'm not out to just get them whenever i can or anything like that at all that is not the purpose of the book and it's not how i approach this this what i view as an academic study um but there are a lot of ironies there, especially for maybe the oil gas CEO who now is on the board of an environmental organization and also, you know, um, worried about the ecosystem yet is still doing that kind of work. And so um, there's a lot of what they say and then a lot of kind of I point out their behaviors as well relative to philanthropy or just lifestyle. Yeah, I found it interesting how it directs some of their philanthropic efforts towards to landscapes of aesthetic beauty, right? They want to run a foundation that's protecting or saving something, you know, really sexy, right? Um, or, or like charismatic megafauna, right? Like uh, we need to protect the moose or the grizzly bears, like these big iconic animals or landscapes or specific places. Uh, it's not, there's not as much social benefit or um, prestige with running a foundation to save uh, ugly little snail or bug that maybe is a, a keystone member of the ecosystem and incredibly endangered, but they're not going to get a foundation. Yeah, exactly right. It's it's saving the moose. It's it's um, you know issues related to the park, um, and I would take that even further. And I do in a couple chapters where um, they're not even as concerned about helping other human beings who in the community who are suffering. And so a lot of the organizations who have the most money and who receive the most donations of, of time, of money, of, 
you know, sitting on a board, all of these things, um, they're going to environmental organizations who I argue have enough money. They're going to arts organizations that, again, serve this experience in Jackson where people can go and you hear a classical music festival. Well, then the next day they go or the same day they go hike in you know, a pristine national park. Whereas there are folks in their community, many of whom work for them directly or indirectly, who are really struggling to get by. Um, and so there's this disconnect there um, between, you know, where the money is going and, and, in my view, where it should be going. Um, and so I point that out, you know, throughout the book. And um, there are a lot of ironies there as well. And they have this view of, of Jackson as this you know, tight knit Western community. And, you know, where everyone gets along, people take care of one another. But, you know, if that were true, the philanthropic numbers would look a little differently. I mean, we should have actually probably mentioned this before, but this book is built off of hundreds of interviews that you and others conducted. How and where and who did you you talk to? We'll say like for the ultra wealthy side, and then maybe we can segue to some of the working class uh, interviews and stuff that you did. But how, how did you access these people? What was the process? Yeah. So the book, the book itself kind of obscures all the, the years of work that went into it because I wrote it, you know, and it revol- in a way that revolves around the stories and the, and the people. But it is based on uh, what was like five to six years of research, um, 205 interviews. And the most difficult part of the project was really the first several years when I'm, I'm trying to gain access into this this population and that and the, the barriers to access are great you know among the ultra wealthy i used uh this dual identity i have as, as a yale professor which has this elite gravitas that is attractive for um many ultra wealthy people who you know may send their kids to an elite school like that or, or want to and then being born in wyoming and having this sort of Western gravitas that comes with being from Wyoming and this image of authenticity that is just comes with that for, for people, especially like ultra wealthy and folks from the East coast who kind of view that as this, again, true American identity that has all these kind of racial stereotypes as well and masculine stereotypes um, that are attached to it. Um, So I use that Yale name and then the Wyoming native issue that um, they found attractive to kind of get into that world. And then once I had a few um, contacts, I just kind of built it out from there. But I have a whole appendix that details that whole, you know, that whole process. Um, but it was really difficult to get access. And that's why there really hasn't been a lot of scholarly work on this class of people, whether it's about nature, Jackson or other, right? We just don't have a lot of work on um, that is from the perspective of the ultra wealthy themselves. You know, we have a lot of high level economic analysis of wealth concentration and inequality that you hear about, but nothing really at the ground level from inside that world. So that was my whole goal. My whole you know, aim of the book was to present that in addition to what we've been talking about relative to the specifics of the West and of, of Teton County, Wyoming. Was it a real struggle, like having to attend these galas and drink fine wine and um, <laughs> fancy hors d'oeuvres. Uh, I'm sure your colleagues back in New Haven or your family uh, weren't, weren't jealous at all. I, you I'm, know, going honestly, on a, I'm going um, on another research trip, hon. You know, it's, uh, right. I have to go to this, <laughs> this foundation gala. It's going to be really, it's work. It's I swear true. it's work. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I will say that it, um, at times it was easy, but I was always on and it was on. And I, I feel um, personally very uncomfortable in settings like that. I'm not um, someone who can just walk into a room and start talking to people. I'm, I'm good one-on-one doing an interview with folks. Um, I, I really enjoy that. But when it does come to kind of going, like I had the Yellowstone Club chapter where I was at this event and I was you know meeting with different people, that was really stressful as were other events for me personally. And I would, I would always come home and my wife's like, why are you so exhausted? Even a couple of days later, because I think my personality and I've done the Enneagram deal where it like tells you where you're comfortable and where you're not. And 
like large groups and people I don't know, I'm not comfortable. So it was actually pretty <laughs> stressful, but you know, I am not complaining about the types of food and wine I would drink. Um, <laughs> it's, but it's not that my jam comes with also, you know, so yeah, it was, um, uh, I, but I did meet a lot of really nice people and had, you know, some good times at these events, um, trying to put myself in their shoes as much as I could. Yeah, I do appreciate you seem to, you do have empathy for, for them. Um, and you do know that there is some academic bias against the ultra wealthy, which is one of the reasons why they haven't been studied a lot from their own perspective. But this book would come off much more as a mean spirited expose if you hadn't really imbued it with the sense of empathy. Like you were trying to understand them on their own terms without, it wasn't just all gotcha questions, which. Uh, it which was not. I even may have went too far in terms of the empathy I show. I've, you know, some people have pushed beyond that in the sense of I need to be more critical and I need to draw more conclusions at the end about what needs to be done and why. And I try to do some of that, but I really was after this um, fair-minded account where I, again, let them speak for themselves because we have so much already in our culture right now of gotcha, of Twitter, of all jumping to conclusions. And um, I'm not saying these folks are perfect, but they are human beings and um, they have a lot of the same concerns. But as I show in the book, they have a much larger um, impact on environmental issues on the West and um, which I think should be should be looked at critically. Let's talk about how their relationship with uh, the rural poor and how they uh, interact with them and use them, what they gain from those interactions and how they kind of shape the interactions with the rural poor and those relationships as a way that, that I guess, yeah, it does benefit them in certain ways. Uh, yeah, I would say um, the term use them would be accurate in, in the sense of using um their styles of dress, using what they view as this romanticized kind of low-income Westerner who's the ultra-wealthy view as, and many Americans view the West in this way. It's, it's part of this whole myth that, um, you know, they're sort of in kinship with nature. They're, they're kind of living this life where they're free from the wealth, wealth and power that can corrupt the ultra-wealthy and they just kind of are content people, you know, they're living in a van or they, are this um, romanticized view of an indigenous person who's living off the land with the buffalo and harmony. And, um, and so all these myths kind of are bundled into this idea um, that the ultra wealthy really um, are attracted to because it satisfies these concerns they have of has wealth like corrupted me somehow has, um, you know, it turned me into this out of touch monster and I don't even realize it. And so they're using rural people as this vehicle for personal transformation, I argue. And it's a pretty strong argument in the book. It's one of my where I really kind of go out on a, on a limb, so to speak, based on the data. And what I'm finding is that I do think that they are they're not just dressing up. They're not just going out on vacation. I think they are really trying to create these versions of themselves that they view as more authentic, that they view as more virtuous uh, or more community-minded relative to who they were when they were climbing that ladder or their, their life within, in the, you know, on the fortune, uh, running a fortune 500 company company. And they, and they draw from these, these myths of the hardworking rancher or, or the ski bum or, or, or these other Western stereotypes that they have and that they see in the town um, and that they, you know, when they're walking downtown on this old Western boardwalk or at the cowboy bar, which have all been constructed based on those myths, right? <laughs> yeah. You see the ski driving a camper van and they're talking to them at the coffee shop and saying, what's like, oh, that's really cool. You're driving around the West. Like, you're not worried about your career. Um, that's refreshing to them. And so I have all these different stories in the book about that, that it really surprised me. That became one of the main themes of the book, if not the main theme. Um, about how they become these normal people and all the stories they talk, they tell me about that. I mean, in these interviews you did, how explicitly did they state this? Did, did they say that like they they felt guilt or that they felt in inauthentic or that they felt the need to transform themselves? Like, or did, is that something you you took out of what they were saying? 
Um, they would never say that directly. No. How clearly did they recognize the dynamics that were perhaps at play here? Well, for I opened one chapter with a quote um, from this this um, I think he was a CEO, uh, and he said, you know, oh no, like what have I done? I've been working so hard. I'm, I've almost wasted my life. Like who have I stepped on to get to where I'm at? And so he's not saying, you know, I, I feel bad. He's not saying I feel inauthentic or I feel unvirtuous or something. But all these different quotes like that add up to kind of this theme and this um, argument that I'm making that they are trying to kind of create these new versions of themselves. So, for example, I tell the story of a guy named John uh, who made tens of millions as an oil and gas CEO. Um, but then since moving to Wyoming, he's become really passionate about becoming a normal person. And so that was the key word oftentimes, that they just want to downshift. They want to become normal. Um, and he actually wears Wranglers and cowboy boots now. He he told me story after story of his working class friends that he has. And he, you know, he would tell me he would he would disguise the fact that he lives in a gated community to them. They would accept him as a local um, so he was, he, he was, was really to, trying to pass as 100%. Well, he, he, he's not trying to, he, he believes that he does. He, it, it's not this, um, you know, he would say, I'm, you know, I've got the, I've got the airplanes, I've got money. Um, but he goes down there and he's drinking beer with the guys who are on the ski lifts. And he really believes that he's as much as a lifty as they are because, Money doesn't come up when they're sitting there. They're talking about what was the powder like or in the summer, you know, are you going to hike the Teton Crest Trail or, are you, you know, um, do you mountain bike? And those are the things that you talk about. And so people often would say the ultra wealthy would tell me in so many different forms, you know, money does not matter here. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It, it really doesn't. It's about um, what you can do on your skis, what you can do. Um, you know, with your hiking boots and because um, everyone's out there is just, you know, trying to enjoy nature in the same way. So money just kind of falls away. But the irony, obviously, is that money does matter there, um, especially for people who don't have it. Right. It matters a lot. <laughs> um, but there is this sense that um, they're trying to kind of become this person where, you know, they're just worried about enjoying nature, protecting nature and, and recreating. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a powerful transformation. Um, but they, of course, have the privilege to uh, and the means to sit down and, and make that transformation, you know, of their own, <laughs> of their own. Yeah. Will, right. And, and one I would say, too, that an interesting uh, issue that I dealt with was, you know, am I able to talk with people that they claim are their friends now? And, and ask them, are you actually really friends with these people? And, and more often than not, the people that the ultra wealthy would claim, you know, that are their friends were in this relationship of economic exchange, whether it was they were their nature guide, they were their fishing guide, they were their, um, you know, they provided services for their home. And so the people that they're romanticizing are not, um, you know, just their friends, they, they may hang out after they do their work or whatever, but they're, they depend on the ultra wealthy for their job, you know? And so I would oftentimes do an interview with somebody who works for them and they'd say, well, they're not like really my friend. You know, they're, they're nice and they pay me, but um, I wouldn't call them my friend and they're actually not very normal at all. And um, so that was really an interesting side of things as well. Yeah. Let's talk about how, uh, yeah, how some of the rest of the community views them whether they kind of see through that, that newly transformed identity that some of them are putting on. Um, what else did you get from these interviews with, with people who work for them in various capacities or people in town? Um, how do they view the ultra wealthy? I mean, they may be up, you know, in their gated communities. Um, they may not always see them all the time, but they definitely feel the economic pressures that are being put on them by the presence of the ultra wealthy. So how do they, how do they view that? Yeah, so it's, <clears throat> it's tough to, to see an ultra wealthy person around town and know that they are, you would have to see their house or you'd have to drive and, you know, out on a butte, um, you know, a really nice house on the top of a butte and you know, it's worth $20 million. You know that it wasn't there two years ago and you can just kind of see the community slowly changing in that way. Or you can see 
your the only the you know your rent going up and up and up. Um, so it's not like maybe somewhere in Aspen or maybe if you're in San Francisco or New York City, where you would see the cars, you would see the way people were dressed. It's disguised. It's it people. You know, you walk into a coffee shop, and I heard this all the time, and they would say, you don't know who is a billionaire and you don't know who, you know, maybe working two to three jobs just to get by, or maybe two to three jobs you would maybe notice, but somebody who was, you know, struggling to make it, or maybe someone who was more middle-class in the community, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them. Cause the and, billionaire is wearing and, and wrangler too. Exactly. Or yeah. Or a flannel shirt, or maybe, maybe a Patagonia jacket or something like that would be the most, you know? So um, they're not wearing for, wearing fur boots and driving a Lamborghini like on Dumb and Dumber, you know, when he, they get all that money. Yeah. So um, and that's a really important point that many of the wealthy people would would make to me was they're worried that the sort of newer rich folks moving in who are flying more private jets in and who maybe drive Teslas and who aren't aware of this culture that needs to be maintained. But, um, but isn't that always the complaint? Old money always complains about new money, right? Always, yes. <laughs> um, but, you know, they would always complain, like, this is going to become Aspen, and we're not going to have this Western character. Um, but it, again, is this veneer of Western character. It's it's not real Western character because, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons. Also, the community itself is not taking care of one another. It's, you know, it's it's all this sort of this veneer that's kind of, propped up. And so I think it hides the class, the class differences. And it would almost be better if you could see them. Um, because you know, you know where they were and what was happening. Um, and so if you go there, you know, for, for listeners who haven't been there, you probably won't notice it very much that this is the richest county in the country. And I hear that a lot. Um, but if you, you know, check out the numbers, um, it's very clear. Talk about the paradise lost for the people who you know, maybe they've lived there for generations or they're newcomers, but um, about the, you know, the rising housing costs, threats of constant threat of eviction, these things being driven by the, the wealthy's um, purchasing of land and rising property values. What's the, the crisis for working class people living there? Yeah, it, it really um, is a crisis and it's, um, you know, folks just can't live nearby anymore. It's, it's too expensive. I was just there last week um, and I had a, had a friend who owned like a one bedroom condo and they said that they sold it in like two days for a million dollars to somebody from New York who's never really been there. Um, but they, part of it had to do with the pandemic. They're just trying to get out of New York, I think. But um, that's just one example, you know, of real estate values going through the roof. Um, and it, it makes it difficult for, working class people to live there. It makes it difficult, honestly, for, for the middle class to live there. Um, over time and time again, I would hear about, you know, another person from the middle class or teacher or someone who worked for the police department um, who you would want to be living in that community. Maybe somebody running a nonprofit, they just can't live there anymore. And so it was this big debate kind of, well, among the ultra wealthy when I would talk to them, do we, does everyone deserve to live in this community? You know, is it okay if it just becomes too expensive for people and people can commute in just like you would in some other t community? You know, I had one um, wealthy person from Houston say, you know, I commute 35 minutes a day um, for 20 years in Houston, and I didn't think I needed to live, you know, right by my work. And so why do they? Um, the, the difficulty there for me is you want this to be a community of, of, of real people who you view as authentic and you view as this, you know, tight knit community, it's not going to be that at all if it's just all wealth, an island of wealthy people. And so I think the community itself needs to wrestle with, you know, what do we want our community to look like? And, um, and who do we want to live there? And, and, um, and kind of moving forward, how do we make decisions to help with that, whether it's through affordable housing? And, and um, the other thing I would say as well is, there, there's not going to be anybody to work in the in your nice restaurant, you know, if if you don't help out with some of these issues, um, because if it just becomes unbearable, um, the whole services sector is going to be hit. I think my initial reaction, as as I was reading, and I saw that you were going to be 
conducting interviews with some of with some of the rural poor, the working poor there in Jackson, that a lot of their views of the ultra wealthy would be really driven by jealousy and resentment uh, and anger. Um, which it surprised me. You you say that a lot of their views were more informed by their actual kind of lived experience and interactions with the ultra wealthy. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? How 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 does that inform the yeah. view of the employees of that you know that employee at Subway or the one who's you know cleaning uh, their their mega mansion you know log cabin like yeah so there's there is um, I focused on uh, the migrant community and many of much of the working poor the um, working class in Jackson is made up of the migrant community many of whom come from one um, town in Mexico uh, many are Spanish speaking. Um, some have lived there for a couple of generations now, many uh, are somewhat new. Um, and so I, we did 50 interviews with this population. And so it's from their perspective, um, less from, you know, a white ski bum who's scraping by just to be clear about that. And so there might be resentment, you know, from some of those folks, or even from some of the people, maybe you would say more, more middle-class who live in Teton County or in Jackson. Um, but among the, the working poor, I was surprised by, um, as you mentioned, that they, they're just kind of getting by. They're focused on their work. They're not as focused on these larger um, socioeconomic and structural changes that have transformed this, this community completely. Um, you know, they're happy that there are a lot of jobs. Maybe they wish they were paid a little bit more. So I have two chapters in the book from their perspective. And the first is just kind of established at this point that they're not, um, you know, hating on the rich, that they're not uh, jealous per se. I was actually surprised by how many uh, narratives were, you know, espoused relative to, well, those those wealthy people probably worked hard. You know, I don't know. I hope I hope I can be that wealthy someday. And that's a that's a standard script, you know here in the United States that we rely on about hard work and that corresponds with how much wealth you have. And, and they said that too. And, um, but in the second chapter, there is a sense of, you know, things are unjust, the amount of money um, relative to how hard I'm working to scrape by seems unjust. The amount of money they're giving to save a moose um, and they would use this example, you know, they want, they care more about the moose than they care about us migrant workers. And they would, and they would say that. And so there's the time this was, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a movement really mobilizing and I think they've made some headway. Um, and, but, you know, I'm, prices keep going up and up and I just don't know um, how things are going to be turned around. Um, but I do think that there has been more awareness in recent uh, months. And even, I would say, even in the past few months with a lot of the racial unrest, you saw some protests there. Um, but again, the, the the structural constraints relative to land, relative to wealth, make it hard for me to see how things would change drastically. Yeah. I think you talk about this opportunity gap. No matter how hard they work, the, the system is just so slanted against the working poor that, you know, they can work as hard as they want. They're never going to be able to afford to purchase land real estate, you know, start building that intergenerational, you know, wealth and prosperity in a place that is so outpriced them. Um, and you, you also right. say yeah. that there's no shortage of char charity, you know, charitable money uh, flowing in this community, but very little justice in terms of uh, humans and the, the real suffering and challenges that uh, the working poor have there in, in the community. Yep. There's a... There's a sense that this is a very charitable community and there is a lot of money flowing, um, but it's not, in my view, flowing to the right places or the places that really need it. It's more, um, you know, the wealthier patting themselves on the back for saving, con you know, a moose or something like that or conserving land um, when, in, you know, in reality, there's a lot of opportunity there to help their fellow humans as well. And you could do it all. Yeah. Um, not mention this area is already very well protected by National Park Service, uh, Forest Service, you know, you name it, <laughs> wilderness areas. Um, and so it, it's more, I think, a way for the, the ultra wealthy to really um, earn social prestige in the community, just get involved and, and make friends. Um, again, meanwhile, 
there's so much um, more that can be done to help workers in the community so they can also you know enjoy the area because that's what they want to do as well and it wouldn't take much out out of the pocket of the, the ultra wealthy but to do that i think they're going to have to institute some sort of um what we might call a regular payment <laughs> rather than philanthropy it would be called a tax and uh, state income tax that could really help with things as well it's interesting you say it's not that you're talking down to their environmental philanthropy or saying that it's bad, but one of the last points you make that really struck me in the book was that there needs to be more focus, not just on doing good, doing good for the environment, but there needs to be focus on doing less harm, I think is how you put it, to the communities around them. So more conscious efforts and intentional efforts to make sure that what they're doing with nature or with whatever else is not harming the people around them and the community around them. So do you, do you see, I mean, you mentioned perhaps, you know, like a state income tax. I don't know how that, if that's going to fly in Wyoming any day soon, but um, you know, it'd be great if, you know, someday in the near future, you know, a working class person or a middle-class person could also go up and do that, you know, a hike up in the Tetons, right? I'm sure there are people, working class people in Jackson who maybe have never stepped foot in the in, up in the park uh, or in those wilderness areas or on those trails. They, they, they live there. They see them every day, no time. Um, so are there real avenues, you think, for progress to improve kind of that bottom floor situation? Yeah, no, I think there are. I, and I, as I say in the epilogue of the book, I, I, the passion that many ultra-wealthy people have for this area could be used for good. I don't think it necessarily needs to be channeled. I don't think philanthropy is going to save everything. And I actually think there's an over-reliance on affluent philanthropy to save these communities or to turn the tide. And part of it is, you know, you mentioned, I think it was one of the last lines in the book. I said, you know, philanthropy doesn't prevent the harm that's being caused by the wealthy folks, the influx of wealth, the skyrocketing home values, um, and then even some of the conservation efforts that, that really hardened those impacts. And um, I would say too, though, that, you know, self-awareness would go a long way, knowing that there is a, a, a low-income community, uh, you know, in your midst, knowing that um, philanthropy and where you're giving your money, um, maybe you could think twice about, you know, where it's going. But again, I don't think that's going to solve everything. And more honestly, just an openness to some of the issues that I that they view as buzzkill issues. And I, I name them that in the book. And that is recognizing that there are problems in paradise, no matter where you are. And um, your presence there can contribute to those problems and cause more harm. And so really in this book, I'm trying to provide an evident space, kind of reasoned account of what's going on, you know, rooted in stories. It's interesting to read and all of that. But so they can kind of see this as well. And um, to kind of understand, you know, where are the points where I might be causing more harm than good and where maybe my altruistic behavior isn't so altruistic and maybe it can be channeled in a different direction. Or maybe I could help advocate for, you know, um, an income tax or something like that. That might be stretching it. Um, but, you know, there are all sorts of ways that, that can happen. I provide some soft kind of solutions in, in the epilogue, um, but really it's going to take kind of a restructuring even at the national level of the sorts of policies um, that are, you know, enabling this type of wealth concentration to begin with. Do you have any messages for other communities? I mean, Jackson, it, it is so extreme, right? The, this, the, this disparity of wealth, but other places say, you know, on the other side of the Tetons, say over in Island Park, we were just there at Max Inn on the Henry's Fork of the Snake River. And there's like a new Marriott, like Spring Hill Suites and all of, <laughs> The local cabin owners there that have cabins, you know, next door along the Henry's Fork, are really—they're—they're they're, a lot of them are really upset about this, right? Um, this kind of development. On the other hand, for the people who live there year-round, like it's going to be a boon for their for for their profits and so forth. It's it's good and bad. But other places, you know, that are maybe not quite as extreme, say like um, you know Park City, Utah, which isn't far from me, or down in Moab, uh, Utah, other places where there is this concentration of wealth focused on outdoor recreation or nature and how local communities are being priced out. So from your extreme example of Jackson, 
what lessons can we apply to places that maybe aren't quite as extreme, but that are facing similar problems and issues? Yeah, and I, I do agree um, that Jackson is extreme, but I think the patterns there um, do mirror other places around the West and even, you know, urban areas like Denver or, lar- you know, urban and larger cities like Denver, Salt Lake, Seattle, San Francisco in some ways, where a lot of the things in Jackson are just happening in a larger scale in these places, you know, you have a growing wealth disparity, you have um, extreme population growth relative to what was there, um, you have a housing crisis, you have eviction, you have, um, you know, an underpaid service class, you have at times an overburdened ecosystem. And then really, I think to get into your question, you we have fairly weak and inconsistent and patchwork policy structures to keep up with the pace of change. And it's it's happening so fast. I mean, even in, in Jackson and Teton County, um, it's only been a couple decades that this is, you know, all taken place. And so getting ahead of it, but I do think that people are starting to have these conversations across these different towns, across, you know, maybe the town council in Jackson is talking with Bozeman or talking with Aspen and, and then also at universities like Colorado State, um, BYU, Utah State, Utah, these sorts of um, centers of intellectual development and, and ideas where maybe new policies can be proposed outside of the, the polarized context that you know takes place in all of these different states, um, that we can kind of come up with ideas that might encourage more of this you know, tourism and recreation and this type of new West economy, but all at the same time protect folks who are already living there and then protect um, the people who might come to work for the folks who can afford to you know, live there year round or own a home. Um, and so I think there's a lot of work to be done um, in thinking about how do we plan out these communities and kind of see where we're going so not every place ends up looking like an Aspen or a Jackson. Well, I think it's really important work, you know, more and more interested in the, you know, the kind of the the new West and the 21st century West and how we can take historical issues or things and apply them to make the place more livable for the growing numbers of people here. So I really appreciate your work. Um, Do you have any any new things uh, on the horizon that you want to, Tell us about. Um. Yeah, um, that's a good question. I'm I'm working on a new book, but I'm still kind of trying to figure out the angle. So I don't I don't want to say too much <laughs> about that until I do. Not because I'm trying to hide it, because I'm trying to figure it out. <laughs> but um, since April, I've been working with my lab at Yale, which is this North American West and kind a of research lab that I have with some with several students and myself, and we did um, a COVID-19 pandemic survey across the rural West. And so we um, surveyed uh, rural communities in all 11 Western states. And we just got the results back a couple of weeks ago. And it's really, we're aiming to provide provide an assessment of what are the material needs, um, how have political attitudes changed because of all this, um, and how what sorts of solutions can we you know, draw from these data about what rural Westerners think. And so Folks outside of Denver, you know, none of that, all in really in rural communities. Which is what and, always gets um, ignored, so we're really, right? It does. And so we're um, about to release a report on that. And so it's very pragmatic, you know, a very pragmatic study that's kind of rooted in those communities and aimed to provide information so we can kind of help that area of the country move forward. And so I'm really, I'm, that's it's great. very different than my book, right? You know, and it's more just this kind of idea that we we needed better information about how this pandemic is going to restructure these rural areas. And um, so, and we're doing interviews with uh, leaders in all these different towns. And so um, I guess look for that. We're just finishing the report. Like after I hang up with this, um, we should finish that. We've been working on it for several months. Great. And we'll make the data publicly available right away too. So if anybody wants to um, get the survey data, just look me up and shoot me an email. Great. Well, I'll link to your website um, so people can uh, can find this easily. Thanks so much for taking an hour to chat with us. Uh, thanks for the book, and uh, I look forward to seeing what, what else you have coming. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to chat. I appreciate you uh, making this podcast, and um, it's, it's really nice to have an outlet to chat with 
with someone like you and um, especially folks who are interested in history because a lot of this is just <laughs> the same old thing <laughs> in yeah. some ways. It's so, not a new story really in many ways. Stuff. Yeah. It is not. So um, <laughs> thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Justin. Take care. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave a review on whatever app or platform you're using, or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Wright Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and put that link in the episode description if you didn't catch it. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critiques my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history at Brigham Young University. I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. You can find out more on my website, bwrensink.org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. That's B-R-E-N-D-E-N-W-R-E-N-S-I-N-K. One last plug, if you live in the Intermountain West, check out the Red Center's digital public history project, Intermountain Histories, by visiting intermountainhistories.org, or by downloading the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and mobile app, you can read carefully curated about complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Well, until next month, be well, be curious, be kind.